We're starting a new series this week called Words to Live By, which looks at the book of 1 Peter, but just the last couple chapters, and really from the middle of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 5, where Peter goes through this long list of exhortations that he is like earnest that these people know. So he's given this sort of long uh, discussion of the gospel and a, and a call to holiness based on it. And now he's sort of just reinforcing it time and time again as he goes through this. And so each week we're going to take a look at, at just a single one of these exhortations, a single one of these uh, urges from Peter. And today, verse 7 of First Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so you can pray. The end of all things is near. So be alert and of sober mind so you can pray. The end of all things is near. Perhaps you grew up in a church setting where the end of all things was all that anyone ever talked about, right? Uh, If you grew up like me, um, that's what everyone was concerned with. And so they watched the news every day to see if the end truly was here, right? And another war meant that certainly in the next week to two weeks to two months in our lifetime uh, or in the near future, the end was coming. Everyone's consumed with the end. And unfortunately, I think we've misplaced our focus. Can I just say that? Uh, Our focus really isn't on the end, as it were, the demise of this world. But the end, that is the ultimate reality of Christ. God's presence fully in the earth again. So we don't say the end is near. We say the end, the end is near. God's goodness fully showered on the earth. It's coming. The story that I read about the end is of a God who is so desperate to make things right that he sent his son. And even in the midst of rejection, created a path that anyone who would be united to Christ in the end would experience the full goodness of God. The end is about the goodness of God. It's not about the destruction of the earth. It's about the renewal and the recreation of the earth. Now we know that for those who don't unite themselves to Christ, the end is not great news. (laughs) But how, by focusing on that, are we going to sort of persuade them to our way of thinking of things. I'm going to get off on a tangent here, so I need to stop myself. But that's not the point of all of this. The point of the gospel moving towards the end, the point of God's full restoration of the earth, the point of the full presence and incarnation of Christ, the full no longer needing barrier between God and man, is this full showering of goodness. It's a Garden of Eden picture for all of us. The end is at hand. God is making things right. The word end here is the Greek word telos. And it means that. It doesn't mean sort of it's coming to its demise or conclusion. I'm a baseball fan. I'm a Phillies fan. And so what we like to say this year as a Phillies fan is their window is ending, right? They were good for a while and now we see them get old and they're injured and they're like trying to to make it to 500. They're probably going to have a losing season and it's sort of this this horrible reality of baseball, so we say the end is coming. We always have this negative sort of perception of end, but 
but the Greek word end here sort of means this goal that we're moving towards, right? It's a goal that's going to be attained. It's completely positive. It's not completely negative. So, Lehigh students, you have a telos in mind, right? Maybe it's just finishing the semester. Maybe it's just finishing the year. Maybe it's graduation. Maybe it's getting a job. But it's this positive spectrum that you're moving towards that when you attain it, there's fulfillment and completion in it. This is what Peter's saying. The end is at hand. The verb here in the Greek language is actually in the perfect tense. And what that means is it's an action that has already happened, but has continuing impact. Uh, so it's hard to translate that sometimes, but maybe the best way to translate this would be the end has come. And we're feeling it. And we'll feel it more and more. Right? So instead of thinking about the kingdom of God or, or the end, as it were, as this thing that's sort of this is lingering there, and it's, it's here. And more and more we're living into the reality of it. Now, Forget the negative part and think of the whole positive part. The kingdom is present because the king came. So when Jesus comes, he offers the kingdom, and it's not just a faulty offering. It's not just something he said and took back when people didn't give him the answer he liked. It was there, and it was for them. It's inaugurated, as it were. But it's not fully installed, if this makes sense. Uh, Maybe you have a car loan and you pay monthly installments, and you know what that means, right? Eventually, the installments are satisfied, and the car is fully yours. This is sort of how the kingdom is coming about. It's inaugurated in Christ's presence, and fully made possible through His death and resurrection, and it's available to all of us already, but not yet. Does that make sense? We live in this strange in-between of the already, not yet. We have the kingdom, but not in its fullness. We taste the kingdom, but not in its fullness. We have the kingdom, but we're not fully satisfied in it because we're living with our legs and feet and mind in this world. And when Jesus fully comes and God sets the world right, when the telos, when the end, the full completion of God comes, it will be all perfect. It will be here, ours, the kingdom for you and me, full communion with our Creator without any barrier, without any obstacle, both physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, any of these things that we have felt constantly in our life. The end has come. And the implications, they continue. We live in this crazy in-between where we're tasting the kingdom but not fully having it. It's a lot like the Israelites. Remember uh, when they're in captivity in, ex- in the book of Exodus in Egypt? Remember? I love the stories of the Old Testament. I love to tell them in bigger broad strokes because it's just, it's, it's so much more revealing. So, so God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless people. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Your descendants are going to number as, as, as much as the stars in the sky. I'm going to take care of you. This is your land I'm sending you to. It's going to be perfect for you. And Abraham goes there. And remember, there's, there's a drought. There's a famine. And so Abraham, rather than living into the blessing of God, I'm going to, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to make your, your name great. I'm going, to, I'm going to make your descendants to the end of the sky. He says, I don't have any food and things are getting bad. So he does what we all do every single day. We take things into our own hands, right? 
hey, God, you made a good promise to me. I love that promise. Something's not going right here, so I'm going to go take care of it. Because you're like, you're forgetting about me here, right? Your eyes are, are off the ball. And he goes to Egypt. And he lies about his wife in Egypt, and crazy things happen. And he comes back up, and don't you know he has a son, Isaac? And then later there's famine in the land. And Isaac, though he's the, the very real promised son of Abraham, who comes when Abraham is older than old can be, rather than holding on to the promise of God, tries to find it for himself. And where does he go? Egypt, right? And so he comes, he tells lies about his wife again, <laughs> and bad things happen, and he comes back up, and, and Jacob is born, and Jacob wrestles the birthright from his brother, and he has the promise of God, and don't you know there's famine in the land again, and what does Jacob do? He doesn't go to Egypt. He sends his sons to Egypt, right? He's finally figuring out, we will just send them to do it. And, and finally, God says, if you like Egypt so much, why don't you live there? And the people of Israel are sent into exile in Egypt, and they make bricks for 400 years. You think that your job stinks. And then when they complain about it, they crank up the heat on them and, and tell them to make it. About straw, right? 400 years. And then God miraculously intercedes and says the promise is real. The kingdom is here, right? And, and the people of Israel, through, through the leadership of Moses, miraculously through plagues and through parting of, of, of seas and, and through drowning of, of, ar- of conquering armies, find their way out. And then they spend the next little bit in this wandering period kingdom is inaugurated but not fully installed and God is very concerned with how they live in that period Uh, and we know that they don't do so good we live in that world we live in the wilderness don't we have fully the presence of God free from the exile of sin We know that the someday is taken care of, but it's not fully here. We know that we're on our way to the promised land, but we can't see it well a lot of the time. We're mired in the mess of this world that is not just the world's doing, but it's our doing too, right? We don't live well in this world, if we're being honest. We're sojourners. We're nomads. We're tent people just trying to find our way. And Peter, as he writes, and very interestingly, right in the beginning, right, he writes to the diaspora, right, to the Christians scattered everywhere. The nomadic people of God, trying to make do in this world in the already not yet kingdom. And he says to them, the end has come. Be alert and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If you take those two words, be alert and be sober-minded, they actually both mean be sober. So I don't know, uh, perhaps the the Christian diaspora of the first century uh, was very prone not just to wine, but drunkenness. We don't know. But Peter basically says to them, the end has come, so be sober, and I'll tell you again, be sober. Right? Be sober and be sober for the sake of your prayers.
why is he telling them to be sober? I don't think that it's about drunkenness. And the context tells us that much more is happening here. Be sober and be sober. Be sober-minded and be sober in your action. We'll see these things. Because there are two realities of the world as I see it. And, and I think that you probably agree with me on this. The first is that the world is full of the intoxication of self-worth. The the world is filled with the intoxication of self-worth. And we are all drunk on it. Me too, by the way. And our world is so completely given to this reality that it promotes it constantly, 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 constantly. All of the time. So much so that we live in a world where, where, where depression and anxiety and all these things are just so prevalent because of these realities that are just sort of coexisting here. And, and we find people who actually might speak of themselves as having low self-esteem, but in reality, in many ways, the presence of low self-esteem speaks a lot more to a high view of self than it does a low view of self. Because what you're saying is that you're perceived understanding of the opinion of others about you doesn't meet up with your own opinion of you. It's a great book um, by a man named Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. He argues this point very well. I would encourage you to check it out. We live in this world. Everywhere I go, people are talking about that. Matter of fact, we always hear from our leaders, from our presidents, about this, have you heard this term, American exceptionalism? We are exceptional, right? And we love that. Uh, and I, it's interesting, there's this whole Syria thing going on, I don't know how much you guys have, have followed this, um, but basically, the American government has one view on it, and the Russian government has another view on it. And so, so interesting to me, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, wrote... Uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, but basically in it, he says, you know, you Americans, you're not as exceptional as you think. Ouch. No one likes to hear that, you know. How many dads go up to their son and go, son, I love you, but you're not all that exceptional, right? We're told we're bad parents for that. And we would, I would never say that to my boys, husbands or wives, how would you like it if at the end of the day your loved one came to you and put their arm around you and said, you know, you did your best today. It wasn't that great. <laughs> Ouch. We can't, we don't live in a world that processes, like, like that would like end marriages, right? <laughs> we don't live that way because we live constantly in this narrative of exceptionalism. We've all got it all together. That's why when you internally know that you don't have it all together, you will not share that with anyone because it doesn't fit the meta-narrative of our world because instantly you'll think, I'm not as good as everyone else. Suddenly their opinion of me doesn't meet my opinion of me. You live in this world that constantly is preaching exceptionalism to us. But what is the truth? I mean, what is the truth? Look at what Paul writes in Romans. I love this. We love Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, right? It's good stuff. Therefore, based on all of this, this great gospel, 
offer your bodies as holy and living uh, sacrifices completely given to God. Listen to verse 3. This one doesn't sound as good. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing will. This is great. Speak. Pumping up the troops. Ready to go. I've given you the gospel. This is awesome stuff. And then he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Rather, think of yourself in soberness. There's that word again. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Catch that? Even the faith you have in God, God gave to you. So don't think so highly of yourself. Can I just say something? Because we're a friendly crowd. You are not exceptional. And I'm probably worse than you if you see me try to perform certain tasks. Right? We had face painters yesterday. Could you imagine if I was on the, at the face painting table and these kids were walking around with unbelievable designs on there. Um, I was talking to someone, I forget who it was, Peter, I think, and we said you know, we'd have to draw like stick figures on the side of their faces and the kids would like be wounded by that instead of overjoyed. The truth of the gospel, and this is why the gospel doesn't sell well in our world, is you are not exceptional. If we want to actually strip it down and give you the the hard truth, you're a failure. And, And it takes one to know one, so I am too. But the gospel doesn't end there, because if the gospel end there, then the end would be just bad news, right? And we said the end is good news. You are not exceptional, but you are completely invaluable. Catch this. You're such a failure. <laughs> People are going to listen to this recording and think, my goodness, he's killing them. <laughs> You're such a failure that you can't even have faith of your own. God's got to give that to you too but you're so invaluable that Jesus would give his own life for you. Those two things come together, and it's the gospel. God actually sees the lowly as lofty. The gospel is the greatest news I've ever heard. If you don't believe that, then you haven't understood it. The reality is that exceptionalism doesn't matter in God's world. He takes 400 years of brickmakers and makes them kings of a new land. This is my story and your story. And so the constant urge of Peter and the followers of Jesus, because it's from Jesus himself, is find your worth in Christ for crying out loud. Stop buying into a meta-narrative of this world. Stop telling yourself over and over. Self-talk is good, but only if it's based in, in, in the gospel. That it does not matter. The sum total of my wrongs. That it does not matter how much I screwed up or am screwed up. Because in the eyes of the creator of the universe, I was so valuable that Christ would give his life. Find your worth in Christ. What does Peter say earlier in in his letter here? Chapter 1, verse 13. 
Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Do not be given to the intoxication of self-worth, but have sober awareness to the state of your heart, your soul, and mankind. Peter's desperate for us to know this. Second thing, the intoxication of self-indulgence. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Our world is so given to indulgence that indulgence is is broadcast to us as a virtue, right? Uh, So when when I was younger, um, Sheryl Crow used to sing this song, If It Makes You Happy, It Can't Be That Bad. I don't know. I mean, that's probably half true. But what about all the other things I'm thinking about right now? But this is sort of the, the, the story that the world is constantly putting to, and we receive it as ourself. And, and, and these stories of self-worth and self-indulgence have so penetrated the church that it has taken the power of the gospel and made it just like water. We don't even know what temptation is anymore. Because we live according to a pattern that says, I need what I need. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm thinking, when's the last time I was tempted? Man, it's been a little while. And I'm thinking, that can't be true. (laughs) You know, we live in this sort of indulgent way. That if I need it, I'll take it. I'm not saying that you'll take from someone else. We sort of have boundaries that we, you know, these big boundaries that we don't cross because that would mean prison. But, but beyond that, we sort of, you know, it's my money, so I'll do with it what I want. Forget about the poor, you know. I'm hungry, so I'm going to eat that, no matter what effect it has on my body. I'm depressed, so I'm going to drink that, no matter what drinking that means by constantly doing it. We get into this pattern of addiction to all kinds of things, right? In the church and in psychology and counseling, we love to talk about addictions in terms of drugs and alcohol and sex. You know, probably most of you aren't addicted to those things, but, like, you're addicted to a lot. So am I, you know? My wife and I have been on this pattern for a couple of three, four weeks now of eating healthy. Many of you want to start eating healthy and realize what you're addicted to, (laughs) you know? Let alone when we start talking about media and TV and friendships and needing a boyfriend and needing a perfect marriage. It's constantly just, you know, we live based on indulgence. I need what I need, you know? But what is the truth? Titus chapter 2. You, however, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, love and endurance. We love to talk about those things. They're really difficult. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. That means there be sober. But to teach what is good, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, to be busy, to to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage encourage the young men to be sober, i.e. self-controlled, In everything, set them as an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because 
they have nothing bad to say about you. Do you catch what is going on there? Don't be intoxicated. Don't be drunk on self-indulgence. But be sober and aware to God's call to holiness. God's call to holiness. Can I tell you that self-worth and self-indulgence are endless pursuits. My son uh, has a hamster. It's his seventh or eighth. I've lost count. Several are buried in the backyard. Um, but what is con- this one has lived a long time. What is constant about this, this hamster is that at like 11 o'clock, he hits that wheel with a fierceness. <laughs> and we live in a small enough house that that is just ringing through the whole house. Self-worth and self-indulgence are like running on that wheel. You're going after it so hard and it's just not getting anywhere, is it? Especially self-indulgence because you're living in the moment and fulfilling it, but the problem with filling things in momentary realities is the urge is eternal. And sooner or later, supply and demand gets you up with you. So be sober to holiness. How you live matters. Can I suggest to you two reasons why? One, because it glorifies God, and we're told that this is the chief aim of Him creating us to begin with. And two, because when you live in holiness, you are, as Leslie Newbegin so rightly said, the sign, symbol, foretaste, and instrument of the kingdom which has come but isn't fully installed. You're God's means of announcing it. And and not on some soapbox with some bullhorn in the middle of a town or on campus, but in in the real, tangible, emotive ways of your heart and your soul. And this is what God has called us to. If this stuff wasn't important, if he didn't intend to use you in this way, then when you were united to Christ, it would have been the end of your earthly existence. There's no real need for you beyond that. But there's a call on our lives to live into this not exceptional but completely valuable reality. To live into this not indulgent but holy reality. This full call of God on our lives. And so Peter wants you to know, he wants me to know, you need to be sober. Prophet Haggai uh, was sent by God because God was frustrated with the people who had returned from Babylonian exile to build the temple. Singular call. And they got there and they started it and things were going well. Uh, But then the neighboring people said, you know what, I don't think you should build the temple anymore. And we'll fight you if you still if you do. And so God's people say, well, God did get us out of exile to Babylon. You know, and it was just like getting us out of exile to Egypt. But I see in the moment these people don't want us to do it, so we're going to stop. You know? And then they start building their own houses. And uh, the prophet says they're building paneled houses. Now, I grew up in a house with paneling, and there's nothing to like about it, right? But paneled houses in, in that day were like houses of luxury. They had ceased because of discomfort 
doing the thing God had called them to do and had started instead to build their own kingdoms. And God says to the prophet, get in their face and remind them, you can fill your pockets with riches, but there are holes in your pockets. and You will never be content. This is our reality, isn't it? You run that hamster wheel so hard and never get anywhere. And yet, we could have our identity in Christ and be completely fulfilled. Find full worth in Him. And, can I say, we could learn to indulge in the goodness of God rather than in the so-called needs of our heart. Be sober for the sake of your prayers. Now, I find this so interesting. And we start to get to the, to wrapping up here in a minute, start to get to the heart of Peter. Because if you remember Peter's storyline, Peter is a big talker and not always, he doesn't either, sometimes he's a big talker that gets himself in trouble for saying ridiculous things. And sometimes he's a big talker that gets himself in trouble because then he doesn't do what he said he would do, you know. Um, we, none of us are like that. <laughs> so Peter, remember, Jesus, I'll die with you. He's saying things like this, right? And so they get sort of to the end of this storyline, and Jesus, the night before he's crucified, is in the garden. Do you remember this story? And he is just at the point of emotional breakdown. The, the scripture tells us he's sweating drops of blood. And he says to his closest of disciples, Peter including, Come pray with me. And he goes to, to pray. And Jesus comes back. And what are they doing? What is it, Peter's heart here? Huh? Don't make the same mistake I did. The end was at hand. And I was seeing things in a different way. And Jesus asked me to be sober and alert and on guard and with him. And he came back and found me asleep. So Peter says it twice. Be sober, be sober for the sake of your prayers. How has Jesus taught the disciples to pray? He's taught them the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are God and I am not. And that's okay with me. And if we start there, we've started good. We probably don't believe it when we say that, but we're on a, on a good roll. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom has come and it's not fully here and I need it more, more. Keep revealing it. Don't stop don't now unleash it, not just for me, but to this world. What if we prayed this way? Be sober. Be, don't be intoxicated by self-worth or self-indulgence. Be sober to the state of man and the state of the world and the complete need for the renewal that God is bringing at the end. And give yourself to the prayers. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for our needs. We can't. Remember, we said we're sojourners. We're in the wilderness. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this, he's completely thinking about the manna that rains from heaven. It's the only way they're fed every single day. And he's reminding them, even though you're sort of now living in the land and you can provide for yourself, you can't provide for yourself. You need what God gives you. Don't be drunk on the world be sober to the state of the world, and so pray, God, give me what I need for this day, not just for my physical body, but for my spiritual reality and fulfillment. Embolden me. Embolden me. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those 
to live constantly in the storyline of the gospel. That the gospel is not just some combination of things that you believed to enter into Christian faith, but it is your new story. That you don't leave it behind, but that it orders everything about you from that point forward. That God's grace has filled you, that his mercy has reigned on you, that you can't do it on your own, that you couldn't earn his goodness on your own, and in the same way in your Christian life you can't earn his affection on your own. You need him for it all. So Christ comes and lives in you, and we pray, God, forgive us. We are so prone to be drunk on the intoxication of self-worth. Forgive us. We're so prone to indulge ourselves and give us whatever we need and lose sight of the fact that the end is at hand. It has come, and its implications are fully being installed. Lord, we are prone to wander. Feel it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus tells them to pray that very soon after he has spent 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted by the evil one. And Jesus is fully aware that any other person in that moment would have fully given in to the temptations of the evil one. And so he urges them, pray to God that you are never led into what I just came out of. So we pray with an understanding of the meta-narrative of this world. God, Jesus, don't lead us into these places. Don't put us, don't, don't allow us to venture or to, to get off path into these own places where we find the traps of this world because, Jesus, if I find myself there, I will not have the willpower to remove myself from it. And we say to Jesus, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, knowing that he was led into temptation and was victorious over the evil one, not once, but twice in his resurrection, making life fully ours. The end has come. Be sober. I'll tell you again, be sober for the sake of your prayers. Why? Because as St. Augustine once said, Oh Lord, you have made us and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's pray. God, I have, when left to my own devices, I, I am running the rat race of life. I am pursuing worth in the eyes of self and the world. I'm so indulgent. And yet your gospel reminds me that that the pool of grace that I swim in as a son of the Father is far greater than the sum total of all my failings. Spirit, embolden us. Give us a right view of the world, a right view of self. And may it press us to prayerful dependence upon you the kind of prayers that change our heart that are not seeking to change your mind and the kind of prayers that that, that prepare us to live in the already not yet the in-between world in which you have us dwelling this world is not our home thank you that though we live in it we live in Christ 
Amen.